I have to admit, I, I, um, I have a special affection for the uh, book of Esther. It was my go-to book at university. Um, three o'clock in the morning, I would be lying awake. I would be worried about things at university. I'd be worried um, about uh, money. I was a student. The natural position for a student is to be completely broke. Uh, I was worried about my exams that were coming up and how I was going to possibly pass those. I was worried that nobody would ever, ever give me a job. And, and so I learned to cope in two ways. Number one is, is I learned to make lists. And I would have a little notepad by my bed, and I would write down all the things I was going to do in the morning so I could go back to sleep now. And I would write down things like, I will eat baked beans on toast for the next two years and save money on my food. Um, I, will, I will be getting up at six o'clock every morning to start my studies early. I will get a haircut because nobody's going to employ someone with long and unkempt hair. Things solve themselves there, I think. But um, the other thing I would do would be that I'd pick up my Bible and read. And I quite often try and find a book that was short enough to read, get some comfort from God's Word, and go back to sleep. And again and again, I turn back to the book of Esther. It's a great book. If you've never read it all the way through in one sitting, do it. It'll take you about an hour to do, but it's a fantastic book to read. And I used to sit there at 3 o'clock in the morning reading the book of Esther. And I guess one of the things about this book as well wasn't just the length of it, but also about how relevant it is to our times as well. You see, it was a book that really spoke to me because I really understood the situation that these people found themselves in. And I related to it very well. You see, in the book of Esther, the Jews are in exile. They're in a foreign land. They're the strangers. Prior to this, they lived in their own land and everybody around them was pretty much a Jew. So when they went to somebody else's house... You know, how it was laid out and the food that you ate and all the kind of customs and traditions you did before a meal, well, they were Jewish. They were the norm. And they felt that everybody around them was like them. But you see, when we get into the book of Esther and they're in exile, the Jews are different. For the first time since the entry into the Promised Land, God's people are the minority in their society. They're the different ones. They're the odd ones. The people that people, that people talk about and say, have you seen the family that's moved in down the road? They, uh, they believe in, in only one God? I know. Bizarre. Strange. And the food that they ate was different and how they lived their lives was completely different from the society around them. Their ways of doing things were different from those around. And we know how that feels. I was reading an account recently and it said how people met, it was a survey that said, how did you meet your partner? And what was really interesting is they took it back through the decades, up to 100 years ago, and they plotted how people met their partner. Yeah? Cinema, you know, introduced by a friend. 100 years ago, the main way that people met their other half was at church. Because people would go to church, and that was the social centre of a visit village as well, and everybody would go to church on Sundays, and if you visited another town or village on a Sunday, you would go to church, and that's where people met, because the churches were full. And that was the norm in that society. It's not like that now. 
Certainly felt that when I went to university. I came from Limfield. As you heard, I grew up here. I had all Christian friends. And suddenly I go to university, and Christians are the minority. That's how we are now. We're the strangers in a strange land. How we live is different from everyone around us. When we go into work tomorrow and talk about what we did on a Sunday, when we say we went to church, we're the odd ones out. We live in the same era as the people that these did. It was a time of fewer miracles and less direct intervention by God. When you read the Bible, you'd be forgiven for thinking that miracles happen all the way through it. They don't. There are miracles all the way through, but there's peaks when there are more miracles occurring. And you look back at the time of Exodus, when God is doing something new with his people, and he's saying, I'm going to be taking you out from Egypt, I'm going to be bringing them into, a, into your own land. And he says, look, you, you want to know that I'm in control, I'm in charge. And so there's a lot of miracles there. And then there's a few miracles bubbling along over the years. And then suddenly we get to Elisha and Elijah where God's people are turning against him and going off and worshipping other gods. And God says, right, look, we're going to put a stop to this. I want you to know that I am the Lord. And so again, there's a lot of miracles in that time of Elisha and Elijah. And then it goes quiet again until we reach the time of Jesus and the Acts of the Apostles. And the Lord says, look, I want you to know that Jesus is my son. God says, I want you to know that he's my son, and I want you to know that this church that is growing now, that's my will. And so there's a lot of miracles there as well. But the time when Esther lives, there's not loads of miracles then. We know of some that occur during the exile, but there's not loads of miracles. It's not a time of major miracles. Well, how we live now. We know that God works, and we hear of miracles but a lot of the time, how we see God in our, act in our lives is quiet and not with direct intervention by God. In this book here, God's people have to learn to place their trust in God in a difficult situation. It's exactly the same as we find ourselves now. So let's look at what's been going on. And when you look at, when you, when you read this book, obviously don't start at chapter two, start at chapter one. And I'll just quickly fill you in on what's been going on. So effectively, we have this Persian king, King Xerxes. And um, he has this huge great feast. He's a bit arrogant, is Xerxes. And uh, what he says is, he says, look, I want my queen to come up here and parade in front of all the other men. Because my queen's the most attractive woman in the kingdom and I want to rub all your noses in it. So get the queen up here. I've had a bit too much to drink. Get her to walk up and down and show off. And the queen says, no. And he flies into a rage and says, right, you are never coming before me again. Okay, that's it. And then we get into chapter two, and he says, after his rage has subsided, what he decides to do is he says, let's get another queen. And effectively, he has these, these guys go out, and they do a beauty search throughout the kingdom, and they find Esther as one of those, and she's brought into the palace and lives in the harem. Now, you've read that account of Esther and Mordecai as well, her uncle. When you read about Esther, ladies, what do you think of Esther? Gentlemen, when you read about Mordecai, What do you think of Mordecai? Mordecai 
is a really top official in the king, for the king. He sits at the king's gate. That's like where all the merchants, where all the parliament would be meeting and deciding the king's laws. When the king says, this is going to happen, it would actually happen at the king's gate. That's where it's all decided. And Mordecai is one of the ones that sits there. In terms of his rank, probably a kind of like a senior civil servant or a politician. He's done it. Okay, he's arrived. He's at the peak of where you could get. Apart from being the king himself, he's one of those senior, senior officials. Gentlemen, how do you feel? Ladies, Esther, lovely in form and features. Do you never feel that when you read about people like this that there's a slight little tinge of jealousy just there? Because they seem to have it all. Esther and Mordecai have been given a lot by God. They seem to have so much going for them. It's something that we see quite a bit as you go through the exile. You know, you look at some of the people we get in the exile. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nehemiah. All of them in, in pretty elevated positions. Pretty important. How do we measure up? They seem to have been given a lot. Is it really that easy for them? Esther, a young girl. She's got her life planned out. What she'd like to do. The king's guards show up and she is taken away. And that's it. You are now living in the king's palace, in the harem. We will control who you meet, who you talk to, what you are allowed to do. You will have one chance of satisfying the rage monster that is the king. You have one chance and you will spend the rest of your life here in this palace. Mordecai, your family, generations ago, your family served the kings of Israel. You were the advisors there. And in fact, your ancestors were brought into exile with the kings because you were such an important official. Mordecai, how much would you like to do God's work in God's kingdom in God's land? But you will not. You will serve God here for a strange king in a strange land. A lot has been given to Esther and Mordecai. A lot is expected. A lot of this is expected of them. You know, as soon as you look at people like that and you start to think, okay, if God gives us something, he expects us to use it. And immediately it makes you think about the parable of the talents. The king who's going away and summons three servants and gives one of them a, a whole load of stuff. Or one of them a little bit and, and one a small amount and says, right, I want you to use that while I'm gone. And you'll notice I use the word stuff rather than talents. I have an issue with the word talents. It's because if I asked you, are you talented? The simple answer is no. <laughs> no, I do, I do a little bit of painting. Yeah? But I came here yesterday and of course they were all the talented ones, not me. We're never talented, are we? Talented are the other people. And so that's why whenever I talk about the parable of the talents, I say that God gives us stuff. You are given stuff. Some of you have loads. Some of you have a medium amount. Some of you have a small amount. Each and every one of us have been given situations, people that we talk to, abilities that we have, that only you have that combination, and God says you use that. Just as I gave to Esther and Mordecai, the expectation was that they used it. God says, what I have given you, you use, and you use for my purposes. 
those people that you know at work and that only you have that relationship with, you will talk to them about what you did on Sunday because I've given you stuff. That little gift that you can do where you bake those cakes that just work so well and you're chatting with somebody else, you say, look, why don't you pop around and I'll show you how to do it because you're going to use that as an opportunity to explain what you do on Sundays. God gives us abilities and gifts and he expects us to use them. Jesus talks about the parable of the talents. God has made each of us different and he says, I expect you to use that. How do we use these abilities, skills, situations God has placed us in for his purposes? The other thing we notice with Esther and Mordecai is how much they care. They've got this real relationship between the two of them that we see. But in fact, as you go through that book, you realise that it's not just that they care for one another, it's that they care for God's people. Esther and Mordecai show loving concern for one another, and they also show concern for God's people. And it's a theme that goes all the way through that book. And they're terrified of it at times. Esther's really scared about putting herself up there and having to go and talk to the king because she knows it may cost cost her her life, but she does it out of love for God's people. When Esther is taken into the palace, Mordecai could have simply said, well, that's it. In terms of food and accommodation, there is nothing I can do for her now. She's got the very best in the palace. As far as I'm concerned, I could just let it go. He doesn't. As you read in that passage, every day he's wandering around outside the palace, just making sure that she's okay, just checking up on how Esther is, because he cares and loves her. Esther, now in the royal palace, fed with the finest foods, the finest beauty treatments, everything she could possibly want. Doesn't need Mordecai. But she still pays attention to what he says. She listens to his advice. When he says, don't tell anybody yet that you are a Jew, she says, Mordecai, you know best, and she listens to him. And when God's people are on the line, Esther and Mordecai, show that concern for God's people as well. Are we marked out as people that show loving concern? You know, they are at complete contrast with the world around them. They are the different ones, absolutely. And they're different because of how they show they care. Many uh, centuries ago, there was uh, an emperor in Rome The early church at that stage was known for how the care and compassion that they showed other people. It marked them out right from the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. The early church, as it sprung up, said, look, we will show loving care and compassion for other people. And this, this emperor, Julian the Apostate, and this was after the Roman Empire had turned to Christianity. So at this stage, Christianity was the religion of the Roman Empire. Julian the Apostate comes along and says, right, we're going to change this all back. Sick and tired of these Christians, we're going back to worshipping the Roman gods. Jupiter, Mars, okay? We're going to get that back again. And so he puts in this whole program throughout the Roman Empire to turn the whole Roman Empire against Christians and back to the Roman gods. One of his biggest complaints, the blinking Christians cared so much about other people. Here he is, Julian the Apostate, and he wrote this. 
For it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, who are the Christians, how he refers to Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. The church, right from the beginning, was known for how it showed care and compassion for other people, not just for their own, but for the others as well. Are we marked out like that? Are we known for the care and compassion that we show? If I went to your workplace and I said, okay, I want you to write down a description of this person. If I went to your friends that you meet with and said, okay, here's this person's name. Now, just write down what they're like. Would they say, Jez is loving, caring, and compassionate. Your name is loving, caring, and compassionate. They may not know why. But is that what marks us out as Christians, as believers? Are we known for our loving concern? One of the weird things with the book of Esther as well is it doesn't mention God. Go through the entire book and there's no mention of God. And a lot of people have commented on that and said, yeah, they're really strange. You know, how, how do you have a book that here in the Bible doesn't talk about God? Now, I wasn't very good at English at school, uh, as my mum will certainly testify from my reports. Um, and if you talked to me about grammar at school, I'd have thought you were talking about an elderly female relative. But, but I understand there is this thing called the passive voice. And, and, and in fact, there's an idea that's called the divine passive voice. And the divine passive voice says that something occurs, but it doesn't say who did it? And it's deliberately left vague. Jesus actually uses the divine passive voice himself. In the book of Mark, uh, he has his disciples come to him uh, with a bit of an odd request. Uh, here we go. Mark chapter 10, verse 40. And uh, the disciples come to him. Uh, and... Uh, we want, they say, teacher, they ask, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do? He asked them. They replied, one of us to sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. This is uh, unremarkably James and John trying to better themselves slightly at the moment. Jesus says, you don't know what you think you're, ask, what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And then Jesus says this. Now, listen. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, what he's saying is, there is a place prepared for you in heaven already. He said it's there. But what he doesn't do is say, God has prepared a place for you. He says, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And what, what Jesus is doing is saying, God is in charge and in control. But I'm not going to say his name. You know that. God is in charge and is in control. And that's what we see in the book of Esther. All the way through the book of Esther, God is in charge and in control, but acts unseen. It is the divine 
passive voice. And we too know that in our lives. We're guided by God. His hand is upon us unseen. You look back on your life and you look back at the events that brought you here. I can look back at how I ended up living in Caterham. And I go, yeah, I can see God at work in my life. I can look back and say, yeah, that situation and that situation, I can clearly see God's hand going, right, I'm taking you here. I'm doing that with you. This is going to be a really traumatic time for you, Jez. But actually, I'm at work in that situation because if you don't go through that, you won't end up here. God guides us as well. And the interesting thing is, it doesn't obey our rules. You see, we get the idea we're going to go, well, yeah, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do that and things like this and, and, and God will, will, will do this and God says, no, I will do what I will do. Esther, you're going to be taken from your home and you're going to go and live in the king's palace. One chance to satisfy the rage monster. Is that what you have planned? That's God's plan for you. Mordecai, you will be a high official in the king, for the king. You will sit at the king's gate. You will have to balance a fine line between serving this pagan king and serving God as well. Mordecai, I'm going to put you through some tough times coming up. But you need to know, Mordecai, I, I am in charge. And God says, it is the same with all believers. He's in charge. He will take us through tough times, difficult times, but he's in control. Are we willing to surrender our lives to that? Because at times it will seem really odd. Why does Esther end up in the king's palace? If you read the whole book, you'll realise why Esther ends up in the king's palace. It's deliberately for God's will. Mordecai, at the end of that passage, did you notice that we had this little bit where he uncovers a plot two of the, the, the army officers are planning to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai finds out about it, informs Esther. Esther tells the king, hurrah, the plot is, is dealt with. What reward does Mordecai get here? None. Can you imagine his frustration? He put his life on the line. Because if that plot had succeeded, he probably would have been executed as a result of informing the king. He places his life on the line and there's no reward. Again, as you read the book of Esther, you will realise that that reward comes to him in a surprising way and a surprising time because God is in charge. And are we willing to do that with our own lives? And look at our lives and say, God is in charge. And in the tough times, the difficult times, although God is unseen, I have faith and I believe that he is there. Esther and Mordecai, they use the abilities and the situations given to them by God and say, I will serve God in this situation. They show loving kindness to God's people. And they trust in God's plan and God's timing. The question is, do we do the same? Will we use the abilities, situations given to us by God? Will we show loving kindness to God's people? Will we trust in God's plan and in God's timing? Amen.